coming up in today's episode. And this is something I realized very early in my entrepreneurship career. If I'm going to hog everything and try to hog the limelight and try to be the star of the show throughout the journey, then I would not be able to build an effective team and to build effective uh, collaborations with other people. I really believe in this whole win-win scenario. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. The Doctorpreneurs Podcast is brought to you by Jasper Lodge Care Centres Malaysia. Managed by doctors, Jasper Lodge Care Centres provide loving, trustworthy and quality care and treatment to all their residents. Looking for a professional aged care facility to look after your elderly loved ones? Find a Jasper Lodge near you at Talingjaya, Sri Kembangan, Penang, Kuching, Johor Bahru and Kuantan. Get your free care consultation with Jasper Lodge Care Centres by calling 015-4873-8450. 015-4873-8450 or visit jasperlodge.com.my. We are here to help. The Doctorpreneurs Podcast is brought to you by Pillar Malaysia, sending trained caregivers to your home. Managed by doctors and aged care experts, Pillar provides experience and compassionate caregiving in the comfort of your loved one's home for the short term or longer. For a free, no-obligation care consultation with Pillar, call or WhatsApp us at 01111. 288059 or visit us online at pillarcare.com. Pillars, your extended family. All right. Welcome to the uh, welcome to this bonus episode of uh, the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. My name is once again Dr. Lim, and together with me is my co-host Andrew Mastrandonas. Pretty incredible. We went right to a bonus episode given the number of episodes that we have to date. <laughs> yeah, oh well. Um, as we know, the Dr. Pranos podcast is the intersection of health, aging, and uh, entrepreneurship. And after our first episode has launched, we I've actually gotten quite some uh, questions about uh, who we are and what we do. Like you know, we know we know we have heard about the Dr. Pranos podcast, and uh, we know it's hosted by Dr. Lim and, and by Andrew Mastrandonas. But who actually is Dr. Lim and who actually is Andrew? So these are some of the feedback that we have gotten from our listeners, and they would like to find out more about us. Yeah, we've got a Malaysian guy and an American guy. What are we doing? That's the question. Why are we here? So maybe, uh, Dr. Lim, you can start it off. Yeah, okay. So uh, maybe I think this would work better if we uh, we, we probably ask each other questions and uh, uh, find out more about each other. And uh, uh, so so maybe a little bit about Andrew. Uh, Andrew is actually a CEO of Pillar Care. And uh, Pillar Care is a, is a company that sends trained caregivers to, your, for, to the comfort of your own home. But um, my question to you, Andrew, is like, how do you end up in Malaysia? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, I sort of got the Asia bug back in the early 1990s. And if you can do the math, I was, became eligible for my AARP membership card last year. Um, so I had worked here in the region, in Thailand, in Vietnam, in Korea, in China, years ago, and I always wanted to get back here. So I worked in the U.S. early in my career, spent some time in Latin America, and then ended up back here in 2014, uh, first in Singapore, then a little time in Vietnam, and then I've made a home here in Malaysia and was lucky enough to find Dr. Lim and create some really cool businesses together. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a pleasure working with you as well. And um you you are of Greek American descent, right? Like, how how does it actually work? 
Uh, it works because of my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, <laughs> my parents are both Greek. My mother is from Greece, and my father uh, was born in America. So I am pretty much full-blooded Greek-American. Right, right, right. And uh, do tell do tell more about uh, your track record, I guess. Um, like, what were you doing before coming to Malaysia? You know, what industries were you in? Um, how did you end up in getting into the whole age and retirement care? I'm sure there's a story behind, right? Yeah. Um, started out started out my career as uh, just kind of a junior level consultant in New York City, where I got training, uh, and then started focusing on uh, sustainability issues, environmental issues. And after like five years of that, I got tired of being a consultant. I said, I need to work in like a real business. Mm-hmm. So I, so I went and, and worked for an, a big airline in the U S U S airways, which was, I guess the fourth or fifth largest airlines. And I had a little bit of a background in digital and technology. And they said, Hey, take over our internet marketing sales group. And mm-hmm. I was their first hire in that area. Okay. So I was in like the really early stages of internet travel. Wow. Okay. So I did that for f- several years. And then a bit after 2011, uh, 2001 and 9-11 and all of that, I started getting disillusioned with the whole airline industry, even though the travel benefits were terrific. I said, yeah, I got to okay. do something different. Okay. I got to try this entrepreneur thing. Okay. And I moved to Costa Rica, which is like, oh my God. I had a great job offer from another tech company, but I said, I'm moving to Costa Rica. I'm going to open a small bed and breakfast. And from there, I got into real estate for retirees. In Costa Rica? In Costa Rica. Okay. So we built four uh, retirement villages. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Beautiful kind of in farmland with views of the Pacific Ocean. And we attracted North Americans who wanted to retire in Costa Rica cheaper. Mm-hmm. So that really was my transition to working in the elderly market. Okay, okay. And I really had a passion for that. And that brought me to Asia, and that brought me to the idea of pillar home care and trying to provide a service to people who need caregiving and support in Asia. I see. So that's the brief story of me. Okay, okay. And how long have you been in Malaysia already today? I've been in Malaysia since 2016. Wow, wow. It's so Five years. Coming yeah, sorry to, to get years, there. Right? Uh, off and on in 2016, permanently since 2017. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. enough about me. Let's talk about you a little bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, I remember sort of spotting Dr. Lim uh, through, a, through a colleague when we first started Pillar. And I said, uh, this guy's got potential. We could do something together. And that developed into a friendship and a business partnership. Mm-hmm. And now we're working together on all these different activities. So tell us where you got uh, – your start. I, I've heard you're like a friend of Putin or something. I don't know, but you can, you can tell us. <laughs> friend of Putin. Uh, okay. Not sure if I wanted to be uh, awarded that title. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I guess this this traces back to uh, to when I was uh, younger, uh, in my teenage years. Uh, I've always had a secret desire to work on Wall Street because I found it very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know that look on your face, Andrew. <laughs> but but is it true that Asian parents want their kids to be doctors? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I do come from a pretty traditional uh, uh, Malaysian Asian Malaysian Chinese kind of uh, background, and um, being becoming an entrepreneur has been something that is of a bit of a sensitive issue because when it comes to entrepreneurship. Uh, 
uh, when uh, the Asian parent perspective is it's something that is uncertain. You got to deal with a lot of uncertainties. You got to deal with uh, a lot of uh, challenges that is uh, not as um, structured. So your lifestyle will not be very structured, right? Your 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 earnings, your returns are not going to be very structured. But are you saying your parents don't like uncertainty? No, they don't want it for me because I'm I'm sure they are coming from is is always out of love and they want the best for me. So in their opinion, uh, having the best means uh, taking up a profession, uh, which I I now do see how it makes sense because back then if uh, if I would not have gone into medical school uh, and and graduated with a medical degree, became a full fledged doctor, uh, I I may not have something to fall back on if my entrepreneurship journey didn't work. Like for example, um, uh, so they, they wanted me to pick up a profession such that it becomes a, it becomes a safety net for me uh, you know, in my career, regardless of uh, which stage I am in my life. I could still pretty much, um, if I decided to, to, to not continue down my entrepreneurship journey, I could still pretty much go back and work as a general practitioner, GP in a, in a clinic and make about five figures a month. So that's pretty, pretty comfortable money. So I, I do understand now where they're coming from. Uh, so, so I, I ended up going to Russia, <laughs> Moscow, Russia. Yeah, yeah. Now I know where the Putin reference is coming from. So I was doing a. I was in medical school there for six and a half years. So I actually spent six and a half years of my life in Moscow, Russia. And um, after graduating from Moscow, Russia, I came back to Malaysia. I came back to Sarawak, where I met my wife. And in in Sarawak is is uh, where I served my compulsory service as a medical doctor. So it's two years of housemanship and two years of compulsory service. And upon uh, finishing up my my career as uh, a public servant, I was actually a principal assistant director in the family health de- uh, development division in the Sarawak State. So yeah, I, I was pretty well accomplished, uh, you know, back then when I was 27, 28 years old. Um, and, but still, you know, the burning desire to become an entrepreneur didn't stop because I became a public servant or became a doctor, right? So, so you had that desire before you became a doctor? Yes, yes. It's, it's always been within me. It's just that uh, because because I wanted to kind of like uh, be the good son to finish up what my parents want me to finish. So I, I did, you know, finish my six plus, so 10 and a half years. And I've completed becoming a full-fledged doctor. And then I came back to them and say, uh, you know what? Um, I think I'm going to pursue my passion now as an entrepreneur. So... Uh, with well, they were very worried, very concerned at first, understandably. And but thankfully, they were supportive. You know, even though, you know, my mom has many beliefs about being a businessman, being equating a businessman as um, someone who will do whatever it takes to make money, and money is everything. Uh, but I do, I did kind of, I think over through the years, show her that you know I don't have to be that sort of businessman that she thought she knew about. But uh, that's that's a story for another day. So so I went to them and I say, um, you know, I'm gonna gonna become an entrepreneur, raise some money, uh, and I met this uh, fantastic angel investor. His name is Nigel, uh, and I'm grateful to you today because the first two ventures that he gone into with me, which is a clinic and uh, uh, an app to, for house call doctors, that really didn't take off. I really underestimated the whole entrepreneurship thing, and I thought because I'm sort of smart, I can I, I'll be able to tackle it. But it didn't turn out that way. So 2016 was a pretty tough year, the the year that you arrived for me, and uh, basically all the ventures that I was in involved in didn't work out, didn't pan out, and. A friend of mine, uh, basically, well, more of an acquaintance, uh, basically introduced this whole uh, visiting nursing homes 
idea to me. Say, you are a medical doctor. Your clinic is not making you any income. Uh, and for a short while, I, I was living off my wife's wages as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, the app thing is not panning out. So why don't you just offer your services as a visiting doctor to some nursing homes in in, in Klang Valley uh, such that you can at least earn some pocket money to supplement, you know, to, to carry on with your with your life. And so I did that for a while. And when it finally came to January 2017, uh, I've received uh, uh, an offer from one of the nursing homes that I was visiting. And they said, um, Dr. Lim, since you are so familiar with your operations, I'm now in my 70s. I would like to retire for real. She was uh, uh, the founding person. Was The founder was actually a, a retired nurse. And she wants to kind of like, okay, you know, I'm done. Uh, why don't you just buy, buy over the business? So I went back to Nigel. I went back to the investor and I brought in a few more doctors, partners, investors to raise the amount of money and uh, take over the business from them. And that was how Jasper Lodge finally started in uh, February 2017. And from February 2017 to, 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 to date, uh, which is four years already. Yeah, it's, it's more than, a little bit more than four years already. Uh, we grew from one branch in PJ, in Taling Jaya, to now 11 branches all over Malaysia. So this is how I got into the uh, HK industry. Uh, stepping back a bit, mm-hmm. what was the sort of aha moment where you said, all right, I'm ready to move on from the public health sector into entrepreneurship how did it hit you or when did it hit you well i i came up with the whole app idea and i was going around pitching the idea to different people and that was how i found uh, nigel which is our current angel investor and uh, he was pretty confident uh, mainly because i think what if i if i i don't want to put words into in, into his mouth but yeah, if i recall correctly he said i'm investing because i trust you guys as a team th- uh, to be able to move this forward and uh so that was my first encounter with uh an investor having confidence in us because not because of the product we have, but because of who we are as a team. And that was really encouraging. Uh, and, and since after that, I, I thought to myself, okay, in, in order for me to really focus on the business, I couldn't be two timing. I couldn't be part timing into, there's no, there's no part time entrepreneurship. I, I, I thought there was no part time entrepreneurship back then. I just want, I, so I told my investor, I said, okay, since you have so much faith in, in me, I would quit my government job and I will come into this business full time. Uh, that was how I transitioned from, uh, from public servant to to becoming an entrepreneur. What uh, surprised you in your early days of being an entrepreneur? I I was very naive. I was very, very naive. So I thought we have the product, we have the service, you know, we just lay it there and people would come. But what I didn't know was between having the product to uh, commercialization or bringing the product to the market is actually a monsoon drain in between, right? And it's not just you know, just setting things on the table and people will come and consume, you know, consumers, clients will come. And I thought that was the case with entrepreneurship. But again, I was very naive. But now I understand um, getting the product ready, getting the service ready and actually commercializing it, getting it into market. Uh, it's two completely different parts of being an entrepreneur and two equally essential parts of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, for me, there are two types of entrepreneurs. There are the ideas, people who have a lot of great ideas and there's the execution people. And I was formerly an ideas guy, not really good on execution. But I'm getting better on execution, I think. Mm-hmm. But if you can't execute, you're never going to survive. Yeah. You could have the greatest app in the world, the greatest nursing home, the greatest home care service. If you can't execute on it, it's just an idea. It's not a business. Yeah, absolutely. Executing it and then bringing it to the market such that uh, 
to make it to make it known to people that you have a wonderful product, you have a wonderful service, and people can come and consume and kind of use these services. Uh, I think these are the very very fundamental basics as an entrepreneur that I didn't realize was very crucial back then. And now I know after <laughs> after uh, uh, multiple failures, uh, I, I do realize uh, realize it now, and, and it has helped me grow as an entrepreneur throughout the journey as well. A lot of entrepreneurs are not willing to talk about their failures. I mean, I've had a few. Um, I had a company in the United States called World Makers, mm-hmm. worldmakers.com, mm-hmm. a good name. And we were going to brand products uh, and then give money to social enterprises or nonprofits or NGOs. Mm-hmm. We had set up a distribution center in Florida. We had the products and it just bombed. Just that nobody seemed to want it or we didn't know how to effectively market ourselves right right so you thought it was maybe more of a product market fit issue yes exactly yeah i I didn't even know what product market fit meant back then right right right. but i've learned that since then yeah um then we tried to start a uh sort of a costa rican uh uh food truck when i lived in costa rica when i was doing the retirement villages okay now that wasn't completely my failure the guy that we had to execute this to buy the trailer, to get the food, to produce it. He was, uh, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40 or maybe even farther kilometers away on the coast of Costa Rica. We were inland. Mm-hmm. And we gave him 30,000 USD to do this. Mm-hmm. And he ran away with it. Uh, okay. Trusted the wrong people. Never got it back. Mm-hmm. So I learned about trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we all have failures. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't make you a failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been through my fair share of... Uh, of uh, partnership failures as well. I think uh, if I can count to date, it's maybe five, five partnership uh, breakups throughout my entrepreneurship journey. But what I've learned is, um, yes, you know, maybe we make we, we make uh, poor judgment calls before, but that has not stopped me from trusting people and working and partnering with people because I really believe in collaborative, uh, working together collaboratively. Like even you and I, to, today we are here together, uh, you know, working on our companies, working on this podcast, um, I, I feel that in order to move forward uh, and to move forward effectively and move forward in a big way, I could not have done it myself. And this is something I realized very early in my entrepreneurship career. If I'm going to hog everything and try to hog the limelight and try to be the star of the show throughout the journey, then I would not be able to build an effective team and to build effective uh, collaborations with other people. I really believe in this whole win-win scenario. Yeah. Other people is really important. I learned very early on. I was working with another partner when we started Pillar. And I realized that to do effectively, to be effective in a foreign country like Malaysia for me mm-hmm. and to have a product or service, you can't just come in there and do it yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't just bring your own ideas of how entrepreneurship, how businesses work mm-hmm. when your staff is all local. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. I learned that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And when you came in and kind of took over and kind of fix the operations if you will mm-hmm. that made a huge difference yeah yeah um yeah it's it's true it, it's again i think back to your point say that you were saying it's it's all about the execution i mean you can have the best ideas in the world uh um and it maybe it's the right product market fit right maybe there is a demand because we know h care in malaysia uh it, it's a growing demand and uh, because of the aging population more and more people um, are looking for this kind of care services but at the end of the day having the idea, understanding the market also needs to come with the whole execution part, right? Without the execution part, then we are just sitting on ideas and watching other people do it and never get... I guess this is... 
this is what is crucial and uh, with, with, with what we see in many successful entrepreneurs as well. It's not just about um, getting started, but it's it's about, you know, um, executing it, you know, moving things forward uh, from time to time. And if you ask me like, okay, if I ask you this question, right, is it easier working for others or is it easier as an entrepreneur? How would you answer that question? I would have said years ago that it's easier working for myself and having people work for me. Uh-huh. But I don't think that's really true any longer. Yeah. So, so what, what did you experience uh, along this journey? Because I, I share the exact same uh, opinion with you. Well, my experience is that you can work for someone else and you can have a, quote, nine to five job and you can go mm-hmm. home and forget about it. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you really want to grow a business mm-hmm. and you want to work with people and you want to have staff and all of that and partners and vendors, mm-hmm. it's a challenge. And not everybody's up to the challenge. Sometimes I'm not up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. But then I have partners like you mm-hmm. who I can turn to when I need help. Right, right. And that's a really important thing I, I realize about myself is you have to be able to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Like Pillar right now is bringing in a new chief operating officer who's starting like next week. Mm-hmm. And he's an extremely experienced aged care expert mm-hmm. who knows caregiving. He knows operations. He knows what you know competitors are doing in the market. Am I allowed to share who he is? Uh, let's wait till we have our official <laughs> announcement next week, just in okay, case our competitors right. are listening. <laughs> okay, okay. But he really knows his stuff. Right, yes. And while I have some strengths, I hope, uh-huh. he's got a whole set of strengths that are going to bring a lot of value to our company. And I've seen this. Like over the pandemic, mm-hmm. we've all been kind of like not into our work during the pandemic. We've, mm-hmm. been, we've been at home mm-hmm. and we just didn't feel like our best. Mm-hmm. But I realized during that process, and you just jump-started it recently – was that we need to bring someone in who is an expert on a local basis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's going to make a huge difference. It's going to make me better. It's going to make the company better. It's going to make our customers better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely agree with you. Like When I, when I, when I was asked the same question, like, uh, is it easier working for yourself or working for others, right? Working as a company or working for others. Uh, I mean, become, being an employer or being an entrepreneur, right? So, uh what am I talking about? Being an employee or being an entrepreneur? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, even back then when we were house officers, um, you know, we used to have to work maybe 80, 90, 100 hours a week, uh, which is uh, breaking every single labor law in the book, but it's necessary for medical training, apparently for doctors to become competent. You know, we have to go through this uh, uh, this uh, baptism of fire kind of thing, you know, <laughs> kind of went through that process. And, and now, now, being an entrepreneur, when I compare my lifestyle now and, and back then, of course, um, back then, the hours were long. But as you said, when when I'm done with the shift, when I'm done done, done in the hospital, I'm done. I don't worry about it. I don't think about it anymore. I go home, I rest, uh, you know, and, and I go back to it again the next day. And when I'm on holiday, when I'm weekends, uh, when it's week, the weekends, I, I'm, I'm well rested, you know. I, I don't have to be worried about anything that's going on. But as an entrepreneur, it's 24-7. It's 24 hours, seven days a week. It doesn't stop, right? Just because you decide to take a break, your company is still there. Everything is still moving forward and there's still a lot of things that could be done, could be created. Um, and, and it doesn't really uh, have a cutoff point when it comes to uh, being an entrepreneur. <clears throat> yeah, that's my experience. I mean, but, you know, we're, we often will message late at night, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock on mm-hmm. various topics. But for entrepreneurs, it doesn't necessarily feel like work because- mm-hmm. These are our companies. We mm-hmm. have a stake in them to see them successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel like work in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, 
what 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 I've experienced is like our team members, even our clients, can experience it when we are really passionate about what we are doing. And I think many of the time, uh, the client decides to subscribe to us. Besides our product or our services, it's also the passion and the fire that the founder carries that they can experience it. They can feel the energy, and they've decided, okay, this is a company that I would like to engage because. They have like the team that really knows what they're doing and they're really passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. But I, but I think as a founder, you have to be careful and balance the way you work and the way your staff, your team works. Mm-hmm. Like, there are many times I would send a message to someone at 10 o'clock at night, someone who works for me. Mm-hmm. And I'd love them to respond an hour later or less. Mm-hmm. Well, but I know I can't ask for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it drives that, me crazy, but I know I can't ask for <laughs> I, I used to have the same issue as well uh, when I when I first started my journey as an entre- entrepreneur. Uh, it, it, it's uh, sometimes we we do expect uh, our staff to kind of mirror or shadow what we do, and when we work crazy hours, uh, we have these kind of expectations. I used to have these kind of expectations from from them as well, but then I realized um, it's uh, it's well if we do get very fortunate and encounter a few employees that work like that, it's a privilege rather than uh, a right. You know, I, I don't have any right as as an employer to demand a response from my staff after hours. But if they do, then wow, you know, it, it really brings a different impression and I'm, I'm really thankful and very grateful. Instead of expecting it or demanding for it, I, I've learned how to be grateful and I've learned how to be thankful when dealing with, with my employees. And I think this is a, also a very new way of management, right? Um, it used to be very cut and dry, hierarchical organization structure kind of way of doing business. But now we're seeing like organizations starting to flatten and, you know, being the CEO really just is just a title, right? <laughs> and and someone once told me like uh, CEO actually stands for chief everything officer. You know, you're actually doing everything. So the, the, the image of a CEO for some people is like, oh, you are high above, you know, you are you're unreachable, you are someone that is proud, you know, in a higher place. But the reality is, I think for CEO, we are, in order for us to be effective CEOs in our organizations nowadays, nowadays I'm not sure if you're experiencing the same thing. Uh, we we got to really be on the ground and be connected with the people that are that are working with us. So in, in, in essence, the organization, organization has become very flat instead of a hierarchy, hierarchical matrix kind of organization. What do you think about this? No, I think that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is that a matter of the type of businesses we have and the stage they're at? Or is it a new way of operating as a, quote, executive or CEO? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because in my early days, when I worked for the CEO of U.S. Airways, mm-hmm. he was on the 10th floor of our building, mm-hmm. and you had to have a special pass even to get in there. <laughs> so a much different kind of environment to sure. being a CEO in what we do, mm-hmm. where I'm actually dealing directly with a freelancer who's making a graphic for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um not because I don't want to do it, but because you have some limited resources and something mm-hmm. you just have to do yourself. Mm-hmm. I also think sometimes, and I know you experience this, that you sometimes think no one can do it better than you can. Mm-hmm. 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 I think that is often an issue with all entrepreneurs and all CEOs is not wanting to delegate because you don't think someone else will do it well enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a struggle that I, I – I, well, I've, I've learned how to delegate a lot more throughout the years, but it, it is a struggle that I have experienced earlier in my career as an entrepreneur as well because when I was an employee I was so used to doing my own thing I, I do have some leadership positions that I've that I've done uh, that I've uh, served under before uh, or, or rather held on to leadership positions uh, during my public service but uh, 
it is very different um, uh, than uh, doing it yourself. And and when starting out as an entrepreneur, I'm so used to doing everything myself that uh, delegation is not really something that is very automatic, right? And I've I've learned it the hard way, right? Sometimes, but sometimes you you gotta you and and by the hard way, I mean I I, I mean uh, I've actually burned out a few times throughout the journey just because I want to do everything myself, do it perfect, and that is how I actually learn how to trust people and uh, delegate it to the to, to my team members, hold them big, you know, sometimes, uh, and and trust that they will be able to deliver. Uh, the level best. It, it's trusting people, but it's also getting the right people who fit mm-hmm. with the organization. Yeah, and that's always been a struggle for all of us. Yeah, I think I think you pointed out a very key element of uh, having a successful business, which is the, the team members, right? Like resource resources like money, uh, you know, sometimes uh, information. These are all re- yeah good resources to have, but. I guess in our industry, you know, in the aged care, healthcare industry, it's still very much people dependent and having a good team really, really makes a big difference, right? Good people on the team, right? Well, that was a question I had is, mm. how do you see sort of aged care entrepreneurship different than other types of entrepreneurship? It's, uh, okay, so so I would say this, um, aged care in Malaysia as a private industry is not something new, but it is something that is actually undergoing a revolution. When we talk, and, and this this I experienced with many people before as well. When I went to my investor Nigel and I and I pitched to him uh, the idea of going to the aged care industry, for him, what he understood is like old folks home uh, for charity, for non governmental organizations, for for government organizations to kind of house the homeless or take in the destitute, the the uh, the old people that are abandoned, right? So that was the idea. So. For, for him, it's like, is there really a business behind this? And for many decades in Malaysia, actually, that was true. Like, old folks' home used to be a place for the destitute, for those that are have no ability to, to stay in their own home or uh, their children don't have the ability to care for them anymore. Therefore, they bring them to a subsidized or a charity center for them to kind of like uh, live out the rest of their lives. But what about people who could afford it? Were there some type of, quote, nursing home? I, I don't think so because mainly uh, I, I would also think the cultural element plays, a, uh, the cultural issue plays a key key role, key factor here as well because um, back then, people automatically based on many people's beliefs right people automatically equate uh sending a a, a parent into a nursing home or a folks home as being simply a, a bad son you know like uh, being what's what's the word filial piety you know you are supposed yeah. to carry out your filial piety you're supposed to care for your old folks until they pass on you know at their own homes or at your home that that should be the responsibility of every single children and that that used to be the belief back then so there was really no market for for that unless like I mentioned just now, those are for the the poor or those that really you know the, have no place to go, and and but what I saw back then in 2017 was a field that is starting to mature, and people are starting to look for professional level kind of care services, nursing services uh, that is really um, not not so readily available, and and even until now, there are still not enough uh, of this kind of bed uh, care providers in Malaysia. And and we are starting to see that people are willing to pay, pay for this kind of professional services. Yes, even when I got here in 2016, mm-hmm. I was pretty shocked coming from America to see the aged care nursing home industry very underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an extremely developed industry in the U.S. and has been for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And even in home care. We were one of the few that were doing it starting in 2017. Yeah. Now, there are several more competitors in the market, but I still think the market here is still developing. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because what we are actually standing at the, I would say, the starting line of becoming an aged population or aging population, right? right? Uh, previously, we didn't really focus much on uh, on this issue because um, it, there was no real um, pressing need, right? There was no real uh, fire burning the butt moment, you know, when it comes to providing this kind of uh, services and care because... Uh, most people have bigger families. They have multiple childrens that can, uh, excuse me, multiple children that could care for their uh, old folks when they when they are older and when they are sick. But family size are shrinking in Malaysia. I think we mentioned that in the last episode, and therefore, more and more people actually require professional services. Uh, and this is how we, as uh, professional care providers, came into the market and and are doing pretty well. You know, so. Um, it's it's evolving, right? The whole industry is evolving. We are still, I would say, 20, 30 years behind when it comes to comparing ourselves to the West or to Japan. But um, what I'm seeing now is there are many uh, trailblazers you know, in the private sector that are starting to experiment with new things, you know, um, moving the industry along, even before regulators like, like, like the government or the ministries are getting involved or having up the regulatory structures. Because we do see, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in free markets, Right, and the market votes with their feet. If you open up a service and people are coming to you, you know that there's a market for that, despite whatever regulatory structures they are in place. So, uh, yeah, it's very encouraging to see. I mean, although, yes, I'm dealing with many more competitors nowadays uh, that are creative and coming out with interesting products and services, but as, as a whole, I think it's pretty encouraging to me as, as uh, looking at the industry because when I am old, I would like to have a... To, to be dealing with a very mature, well-regulated aged care industry in Malaysia, whereby I have my options based on my ability, you know, and uh, most importantly, I'm well cared for, right? So looking at the industry from 2017 up to 2021, I'm actually pretty encouraged to see the the how the industry is moving forward, right? It's not leaps and bounds, but we are taking baby steps and we are starting to see progress as a whole in the industry. Yeah, I agree with you. But there's, there's another aspect of this we should talk about. The industries we're in, sort of assisted living, nursing homes, home care, technology, it's not like other industries mm-hmm. because you can't like, you know, miss a package delivery for a customer or something like that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people's lives. Yeah. Oftentimes people are very ill. They're in a bed and in, in one of the Jasper centers or they're being taken care of by a caregiver for pillar. Mm-hmm. This is a much different and I think more serious entrepreneur business than doing some kind of, you know, retail product or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, we are, we are dealing with people's lives. That's why um, we actually, we should be actually considered uh, healthcare professionals, part of the healthcare industry, because we are essentially dealing with people's lives. I always lives. thought we were. Come again? I always thought we were. Uh, we, we are now still more under the social welfare department, right? Under the social welfare department. But that's fine as well, because we do... But at least in your centers, you're you're providing healthcare services. We are, we are, yeah. We have a team of trained professionals, right. doctors, nurses, uh, therapists. Uh, we are providing because it's what the market needs, right? Um, if the person is uh, able to self care, don't have any medical issues, uh, most of them end up in a old folks home or retirement home, which is not as professional as a nursing home, right? So, 
as nursing home operators, we definitely want to make sure that all our services are in place, our emergency response uh, protocol, you know, we operate with a proper with proper uh, SOPs, with proper KPIs, you know, and this is how I think we are different from just the uh, general moms and pops nursing home players out there. But what really is an old folks home? I mean, that's not a concept we have in America. What? We have we have nursing homes, mm-hmm. we have assisted living facilities, mm-hmm. specialty living situations, and retirement villages or, or retirement communities. But I hear old folks home a lot here. Yeah, old folks home is like uh, more of a retirement home. Uh, it's not so much a retirement village because in old folks home, people m- many of them are living in dormitory style or they are actually three or four people sharing a room, sometimes more. Um, so it's a basically I would say a shelter it's pretty much like a shelter for old people for the aged right that that are still somewhat able to care for themselves so if you have so if you have an, an older relative a parent or a grandparent mm-hmm. that wouldn't be your first choice if there were other options yeah yeah again uh, for, for me the way I see it is if we do have an option to care for the old person at home at their own homes, that would be ideal. But as we know, um, hiring a private nurse, you know, taking shifts, caring for the old person, that could easily go cost up to five figures a month, right? Or Everywhere more. Everywhere in the world, yeah. Yeah, or more, right? So it's not really a viable option for many middle class or lower middle class families, right? The So you have to have more people in the center in order to make it cost effective. Yes. So that that is why, um, you know, things are set up that way and there's also the market readiness to pay right um, the moment you charge more than 5,000 ringgit a month for any form of uh, aged care services the market size just shrinks and and you are only catering for the elite right the people that could really afford to pay and that is actually not that many people so we like same, similar as Pillar as well we always try to look for uh, look at the well a middle upper middle affordable kind of range market because again it's yes it's being an entrepreneur is about making money yes but it's also about being able to deliver our services to as many people as as we can right yeah so that's the that's kind of the whole industry situation situation in in, in malaysia when it comes to aged care mm-hmm. and would you say that except for maybe japan mm-hmm. We see this situation similar in other countries in the region, like Thailand and Indonesia and so on. Yeah. I th- They're at around the same stage of development? Yeah. I think when it comes to aged care, uh, Japan is, I think, what would be one of the world leaders uh, in terms of their infrastructure, their system, their regulatory policies. Uh, everything is really, really done, put in place. But they've been doing it for decades. So that's the difference, right? Uh, I think closely behind they've Japan- They've been aging for a lot longer too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Closely behind Japan would be places like South Korea, Taiwan, which both are also very heavily in, uh, uh, influenced by the whole Japanese uh, way of doing things as well. Um, and Singapore, actually. Singapore has a pretty mature regulatory system, much more structured when it comes to uh, when it comes to um, the aged care industry because, yeah, we know Singaporeans like to be structured. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's, But they also help their citizens too when it comes to aged care, right? Uh, yes, um, there is so uh, subsidies or housing. Yeah, or what have you. yeah. One one of the one of the thing that is that hits me really close to to my heart when it comes to long term care, especially in Malaysia, is we don't really have any real substantial subsidies or retirement long term care programs for people that are uh, that requires long term care, they are ill, or even maybe if they they have a ability to self care. 
we don't really have that. So many people are depending on their EPF, which is the Employee Provident Fund, similar to the 401k in the US. And or if they are if they are government retirees, they are depending on a pension to live out the rest of their lives. And if they don't have the ability to grow their EPF or grow their pension over time, factoring in inflation, uh, many people will run out of money before they can they actually pass on. Uh, well, I think that's becoming a worldwide issue. But aren't there some government-run facilities here, though? There are, but they are just very limited. Very, very limited uh, bits. You know, it's not enough, and they don't. In, they don't really have enough res- resources to to care for everyone that requires this kind of long term care. So, I think this is something that that Malaysia really really has got to look into, and this is where we are behind as well. Like for example, in Taiwan, uh, they have this reverse mortgage system, which I find very fascinating. Right. So after paying off paying off your house, because if if let's say I'm I'm seventy five years old, for me to go around trying to sell my house and move into a smaller place, it's really not that easy. Uh, you know, I may not have the energy, I may not have the health to to go about doing so. But uh, in Taiwan, they have this reverse mortgage government guarantee system whereby they can actually mortgage the house back to the bank and the bank can pay out an annuity or a monthly stipend to the person uh, uh, as, as a loan, as a reverse loan of the house's value, current value. Do they stay in their home? And they can remain, they can remain in their home instead of having to check into a retirement village or a facility. And after this person, uh, after the bank kind of fully pay off the, the, uh, the money, uh, based on the uh, on the house value, uh, if the and, and if the person passes away, the next of kin can then kind of repay the loan to redeem the house. Uh, that that way, I think it's you know it's very well thought of you know, and this is not available yet in Malaysia, fortunately. Is there anyone here thinking about innovative solutions like that? I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Uh, I don't seem to hear about them. Yeah, uh, we we are people. <laughs> we are coming up with innovative solutions. I guess we kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm sure there are many more people that are thinking about it, working on it. It's just that, um, what I would really look forward to is maybe more incentivization from the government for innovators like us. I'm talking about tax breaks. I'm talking about uh, having sandbox that we can experiment in outside the the existing regulations. Yeah, Singapore has those kind of sandboxes and does a lot of that. Yes, yes, they do. They do. Because here right now it feels like from a consumer standpoint, mm-hmm. tell me what it is and what is it going to cost me and can I afford it? Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah. relatively simple. There are a lot of emphasis when it comes to the tech industry in 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 uh Malaysia. Uh, there are a lot of sandboxes experiments you know, for the tech industry, but for the HK industry it's somewhat uh overlooked, I would say. And as I was mentioning just now, not just we, uh, because we don't have long-term care insurance, even private insurance, long-term care insurance, it's few and far between in Malaysia. I wouldn't say completely none, but probably there are, but they are few and far between. And uh, we, we we don't have, I mean, the government does give out um, uh, aid, right, for the for the age population f- uh, to the amount of about 350 ringgit a month. Um, and, and eventually, uh, and and um, what do you call that? Occasionally, they give out one-time payment, right? Bonus payment to to the older people. But it's nothing to help you support yourself in a in an assisted living facility. Ten, or twenty years, care, no. nothing like that. Yeah, it's not enough. So everything is out of pocket. It's out of pocket. So you got to pay for the completely pay for the cost. And in Malaysia and in Asia, we we kind of expect our next generation, right? Many people have children. Which I don't, I don't fully agree with this concept. But many people have children, expecting them to kind of like uh, pay for their retirement, or, you know, or care for them when they are old. Uh, so there's this whole concept of having children 
as an insurance policy for their aging in, in, in Malaysia and in, in many parts of Asia, which I think is not a sustainable way of doing things. Yeah. So interesting, but it's, it's, it's part of our culture and, and, and I, but I do see moving forward, you know, many more younger generations, they are starting to have this kind of paradigm shift when it comes to aging and they would want to be self-sustaining rather than depending on the next generation. So that's, a, that's a very different experience in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as a child, you go and get a job and you take care of yourself and your family mm-hmm. and you expect that your parents will be okay and they'll kind of deal with themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are situations when they need help and you will help, mm-hmm. but it's not expected. Yeah. yeah. Here, it still feels like it's expected. It's expected. Yeah. It's part of the culture and uh, you know you are considered, you are labeled as a good son if you kind of fulfill that duty of yours. It's seen as a duty. But it's getting harder and harder here, I think, to do that because prices are going up. Mm-hmm. Real estate's more expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, a child has to have a spouse in order to survive you yeah. know, who's working. So it gets more difficult over time. It is. And uh, and now we are dealing with a sandwich or hamburger generation whereby they not only have to care for the young, they also have to kind of care for the old and pay for all the expenses of the, the next generation, the generation before them. So it's actually pretty stressful to be in this generation, right? Uh, having to do both. And it's not easy and many people are not coping that well actually in Malaysia. So if you had the ear of some important government ministers, what would you tell them that they should be focusing on in the area of aged care? I think right now it's coming up with a comprehensive uh, system, right? Not just pockets of ideas, pockets of solutions here and there. Uh, and, and and park the whole portfolio under a proper clear ministry, under a proper clear department, such that this department becomes the head or the the driver behind the whole policy making, and it's it's being uh, congregated properly, is being centralized properly, coming up with clear guidelines and rules as industry moving forward. So, the extent to which any aged care policy work is being done, where is it being done now? Right now, it's being uh, so different parts of the aged care industry is being taken care of by different ministries, different departments. Therefore, and and the communication between these departments are not exactly very effective. Many of them are working in silos. So um, unfortunately, it's not very holistic. It's not very comprehensive. It's just bits and pieces here and there. We do see some people putting a lot of effort, like the some research centers, specialized aged care research centers. They're putting in effort. Universities are putting in effort. Uh, we do see the ministry of uh, the, the welfare ministry, the welfare department, ministry of health. Everyone is putting in efforts here and there. But, but it's, it's all not, very disjointed, right? It's very disjointed. It's not very well coordinated. I mean, I'm not a Chinese communist, but it seems to me that five-year plans, strategies for long-term, and I think Singapore does this fairly well too, Yeah, is something – I don't know if Malaysia really does that. We, we do have all these plans, but uh, again, same like – same like entrepreneurship, right? It, it all boils down to execution, right? You can have white elephant projects here and there, but that really amounts to nothing. Uh, at the end of the day, it's what you can execute. And and maybe for, for, to the government, I, I will say this thing of not just coming out with policies, but also learning how to work with industry players that have real on-the-ground experience, real insights when it's coming to the industry. I think that would really help move the industry forward. Right. Hmm. But there are some organizations out there that are trying to work with entrepreneurs, provide resources and funding mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. MDEC, for example. Yeah. So it is happening to a limited degree. It is, it is. Actually, I, I'm not saying that it's all bad, right? We are seeing progress uh, as compared to five, ten years ago, you know, or even when we first started going to the, to, to the industry. We are seeing progress being made. Uh, I, have we seen progress in industry or have we seen progress from a government policy perspective? Both. 
we have seen we are seeing progress in both. So, but me being a little bit impatient, of course, I would uh, I'm looking forward to seeing as much progress in a, as as shorter short a, uh, of a time as possible. I just feel like we don't hear about it. We yeah, but I do understand the limitations that you know the limited resources that the government or the industry has as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to do more. Like it, it, well, it brings me down to why actually I started this podcast uh, together with you, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but for me is. I want to create more awareness when it comes to the industry in Malaysia, Absolutely. in health, in aging, in entrepreneurship, right? And uh, and I do uh, explore different uh, channels to kind of bring the word out there. I know maybe we don't really have thousands of listeners for a start, but I I, I know we're going we're going to get there if we continue to provide good content. Yeah, what what do you think? No, I think we have to get the word out. and We have to engage more people. Part of the idea of starting this podcast was to take on the tough issues that people aren't talking about. Mm-hmm. And bring them to policymakers, bring them to industry, bring them to other stakeholders, mm-hmm. get it out there to people. Yeah. So yeah. we need to keep doing what we're doing and we need to involve more people in this group. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm very excited uh, of the of the guest lineup that we are, we are, we are, that's upcoming in the next few weeks. And uh, I really think that uh, talking to more people, getting the conversation going, you know, and not being fearful to... Uh, speak up unpopular opinions would be something that uh, that can move things forward. Not not just our industry, but things in general. As long as it's not fake news, we'll be okay. <laughs> so, can you give us a hint of some of the topics we might see on an upcoming podcast? Yeah, uh, on an upcoming podcast, we'll be talking to um, dementia experts, for example, uh, uh, a nurse that has a fast uh, experience caring for the dementia people. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, fitness and health experts as well. It's not about uh, it's not about always it's not always about the sad ending of the life topics that we were going to talk about. We're going to talk about also preventative care and how we can stay healthy, stay fit. Uh, you know, as a population, not just as individuals, but as a population. So we want to get that kind of message out there as well. Uh, we will be having uh, um, a Japanese guest. Uh, he's also a very um, uh, well experienced uh, aged care person in the uh, in the in aged care industry in Japan to kind of share with us what, you know, we were talking about Japan being the industry leader, right? right. Uh, or, or the world leader. How How is it being done in Japan and, and some of the learnings we can get from from him, you know? And yeah, and we'll be talking to many more different people with interesting thoughts and ideas and perspectives on this podcast. And we're going to try to have a combination in the future of Malaysians as well as people internationally from Europe, the US and other places. So, we can really broaden the discussion. Absolutely. I think I'm really excited about moving things forward. And I know it's very early to do a bonus episode uh, as the second episode of the of the podcast, but I think we owe it to our audience to give a proper perspective and introduction and and, and the vision of, of where this podcast is going to go and and what we foresee in the future and what, what it, could, it could be in the future. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, thank you once again, uh, Andrew, for your time. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. And I really, I really hope to see more people getting in the conversation, uh, talking about difficult topics and uh, um, getting inspired uh, via these conversations as well. So, all right. Thank you guys for uh, tuning in with us. And uh, this will be the end of this episode. Uh, once again, I'm Dr. Lim. And with me is uh, Andrew Mastridonas. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. <laughs>